Chapter Twenty Five of Saint George and Saint Michael, Volume Two, by George MacDonald. This is LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please go to LibriVox.org. Recording by Hope K. Chapter Twenty Five. Richard Hayward. So things looked ill for the Puritans in general, and Richard Hayward had his full portion in the distribution of the evils allotted them. Following Lord Fairfax, he had shared his defeat by the Marquis of Newcastle on Atherton Moor, where of his score of men he lost five, and was, along with his mare, pretty severely wounded. Hence it had become absolutely necessary for both of them, if they were to render good service at any near future, that they should have rest and tending. Towards the middle of July, therefore, Richard, followed by Stopchase, and several others of his men, who had also been wounded, and were in need of nursing, rode up to his father's door. Lady was taken off to her own stall, and Richard was led into the house by his father, without a word of tenderness, but with eyes and hands that waited and tended, like those of a mother. Roger Hayward was troubled in heart at the aspect of affairs. There was now a strong peace party in the Parliament, and to him peace and ruin seemed the same thing. If the Parliament should now listen to the overtures of accommodation, all for which he and those with whom he chiefly sympathised had striven, was in the greatest peril. It might be, if not irrecoverably lost, at least lost sight of, perhaps for a century. The thing that mainly comforted him in his anxiety was that his son had showed himself worthy, not merely in the matter of personal courage, which he took as a thing of course in a Hayward, but in his understanding of and spiritual relation to the questions really at issue. Not to those only which filled the mouths of men. For the best men, and the weightiest questions, are never seen in the forefront of the battle of their time, save by larger other eyes than ours. But now, from his wounds, as he thought, and the depression belonging to the haunting sense of defeat, a doubt had come to life in Richard's mind, which, because it was born in weakness, he very pardonably looked upon as born of weakness, and therefore regarded as itself weak and cowardly, whereas his mood had been but the condition that favoured its development. It came and came again, maugre all his self-recrimination because of it. What was all this fighting for? It was well indeed that, nor king nor bishop should interfere with the man's rights, either in matters of taxation or worship, but the war could set nothing right either betwixt him and his neighbour, or betwixt him and his god. There was in the mind of Richard, innate, but more rapidly developed since his breach with Dorothy, a strong tendency towards the supernatural. I mean by the word that which neither any one of the senses, nor all of them together, can reveal. He was one of those young men, few, yet to be found in all ages of the world's history, who, in health and good earthly hope, and without any marked poetic or metaphysical tendency, yet know in their nature the need of conscious communion with the source of that nature. Truly, the veriest absurdity, if there be no God, but as certainly the most absolute necessity of conscious existence, if there be a first life, from whom our life is born. Am I not free now? he said to himself, as he lay on his bed, in his own gable of the many-nooked house. Am I not free to worship God as I please? 
Who will interfere with me? Who can prevent me? As to form and ceremony, what are they, or what is the absence of them, to the worship in which my soul seeks to go forth? What the better shall I be when all this is over, even if the best of our party carry the day? Will Cromwell rend for me the heavy curtain, which, ever as I lift up my heart, seems to come rolling down between me and him whom I call my God? If I could pass within that curtain, what would Charles, or Lord, or Newcastle, or the mighty Cromwell himself and all his Ironsides be to me? Am I not on the wrong road for the high peak? But then he thought of others, of the oppressed and the superstitious, of injustice done and not endured, not wrapped in the pearly antidote of patience, but rankling in the soul of priests who, knowing not God, substituted ceremonies for prayer, and led the seeking heart afar from its goal, and said that his arm could at least fight for the truth in others, if only his heart could fight for the truth in himself. No, he would go on as he had begun, for, might it not be the part of him who could take the form of an angel of light, when he would deceive, to make use of inward truths, which might well be the strength of his own soul, to withdraw him from the duties he owed to others, and cause the heart of devotion to paralyse the arm of battle. Besides, was he not now in a low physical condition, and therefore the less likely to judge truly with regard to affairs of active outer life? His business plainly was to gain strength of body, that the fumes of weakness might no longer cloud his brain, and that, if he had to die for the truth, whether in others or in himself, he might die in power, like the blast of an exploding mine, and not like the flame of an expiring lamp. And certainly, as his body grew stronger, and the impulses to action, so powerful in all healthy youth, returned, his doubts grew weaker, and he became more and more satisfied that he had been in the right path. Lady outstripped her master in the race for health, and after a few days had oats and barley in a profusion which, although far from careless, might well have seemed to her unlimited. Twice every day, sometimes oftener, Richard went to see her, and envied the rapidity of her recovery, from the weakness which scanty rations, loss of blood, and the inflammation of her wounds had caused. Had there been any immediate call for his services, however, that would have brought his strength with it. Had the struggle been still going on upon the fields of battle, instead of in the houses of words, he would have been well in half the time. But Waller and Essex were almost without an army between them, and were at bitter strife with each other, while the peace party seemed likely to carry everything before them, women themselves presenting a petition for peace, and some of them using threats to support it. At length, chiefly through the exertions of the Presbyterian preachers, and the common council of the city of London, the peace party was defeated, and a vigorous levying and pressing of troops began anew. So the hour had come for Richard to mount. His men were all in health and spirits, and the vacancies had been filled up. Lady was frolicsome, and Richard was perfectly well. The day before they were to start, he took the mare out for a gallop across the fields. Never had he known her so full of life. She rushed at hedge and ditch, as if they had been squares of royalist infantry. Her madness woke the fervour of battle in Richard's own veins, and as they swept along together, it grew until he felt like one of the Arabs of old, 
flashing to the harvest field of God, where the corn to be reaped was the lives of infidels, and the ears to be gleaned were the heads of the fallen. That night he scarcely slept for eagerness to be gone. Waking early from what little sleep he had had, he dressed and armed himself hurriedly, and ran to the stables, where already his men were bustling about getting their horses ready for departure. Lady had a loose box for herself, and thither straight her master went, wondering as he opened the door of it that he did not hear her usual morning welcome. The place was empty. He called Stop Chase. "'Where is my mare?' he said. "'Surely no one has been fool enough to take her to the water, just as we are going to start.' Stop Chase stood and stared without reply, then turned and left the stable, but came back almost immediately, looking horribly scared. Lady was nowhere to be seen or heard. Richard rushed hither and thither, storming. Not a man about the place could give him a word of enlightenment. All knew she was in that box the night before. None knew when she left it, or where she was now. He ran to his father, but all his father could see or say was no more than was plain to everyone. The mare had been carried off in the night, and that with the skill worthy of a professional horse-thief. What now was the poor fellow to do? If I were to tell the truth, namely, that he wept. So courageous are the very cowards of this sentry that they would sneer at him. But I do tell it notwithstanding, for I have little regard to the opinion of any man who sneers. Whatever he may or may not have been as a man, Richard felt but half a soldier without his mare, and his country calling him, oppressed humanity crying aloud for his sword and arm, his men waiting for him, and Lady gone, what was he to do? "'Never heed, Dick, my boy,' said his father. It was the first time since he had put on man's attire that he had called him Dick. "'Thou shalt have my Oliver. He is a horse of good courage, as thou knowest, and twice the weight of thy little mare.' "'Ah, father, you do not know Lady so well as I. Not Cromwell's best horse could comfort me for her. I must find her.' "'Give me leave, sir. I must go and think. "'I cannot mount and ride and leave her I know not where. "'Go I will, if it be on a broomstick, but this morning I ride not. "'Let the men put up their horses, stop chase, and break their fast.' "'It is a while of the enemy,' said stop chase. "'Truly it were no marvel to me with the good mare at this moment "'eating her oats in the very stall, where we have even but now in vain sought her. "'I will go and search for her with my hands.' Verily, said Mr. Haywood with a smile, to fear the devil is not to run from him. How much of a hay hath she eaten, stop chase? he added, as the man returned with a disconsolate look. About a bottle, sir, answered stop chase, rather indefinitely. But the conclusion drawn was that she had been taken very soon after the house was quiet. The fact was that, since the return of their soldiers, poor watch had been kept by the people of Redware. Increase of confidence had led to carelessness. Mr. Haywood afterwards made inquiry, and had small reason to be satisfied with what he discovered. "'The thief must have been one who knew the place,' said Faithful. "'Why dost thou think so?' asked his master. "'How swooped he else so quietly upon the best animal, sir?' returned the man. "'She was in the place of honour," answered Mr. Haywood. "'Scudamore,' said Richard to himself. It might be no light, only a flash in his brain, but
but that even was precious in the utter darkness. Sir, he said, returning to his father, I would I had a plan of Raglan's stables. What wouldst thou and thou hadst, my son? asked Mr. Hayward. Nay, sir, that wants thinking, but I believe my poor mare is at this moment in one of those vaults they tell us of. It may be, my son. It is reported that the earl hath of late been generous in giving of horses. Poor soldiers, the king will find them that fight for horses, or titles either. Such will never stand before them that fight for the truth, in the love thereof, eh, Richard? Truly, sir, I know not, answered his son disconsolately. I hope I love the truth, and I think so doth stop chase, after his kind, and yet we were of those that fled from Atherton Moor. Thou didst not flee until thou couldst no more, my son. It asketh greater courage of some men to flee when the hour of flight hath come, for they would rather fight on to the death than allow, if but to their own souls, that they are foiled. But a man may flee in faith, as well as fight in faith, my son, and each is good in its season. There is a time for all things under the sun. In the end, when the end cometh, we shall see how it hath all gone. When, then, wilt thou ride? To-morrow, and it please you, sir. I should fight but evil with the knowledge that I have left my best battle-friend in the hands of the Philistines, nor sent even a cry after her. What boots it, Richard? If she be within Raglan walls, they yield her not again. Bide thy time, and when thou meetest thy foe on thy friend's back, woe betide him. Amen, sir, said Richard. But with your leave I will not go to-day. I give you my promise I will go to-morrow. Be it so, then. Stop, Chase. Let the men be ready at this hour on the morrow. The rest of the day is their own. So saying, Roger Hayward turned away, in no small distress, although he concealed it, both at the loss of the mare and his son's grief over it. He plunged himself straightway, deep in the comfort of the last-born and longest-named of Milton's tracks. The moment he was gone, Richard, who had now made up his mind as to his first procedure, sent Stopchase away, saddled Oliver, rode slowly out of the yard, and struck across the fields. After a half-hour's ride, he stopped at a lonely cottage at the foot of a rock on the banks of the Usk. There he dismounted, and having fastened his horse to the little gate in front, entered a small garden full of sweet-smelling herbs mingled with a few flowers, and going up to the door, knocked, and then lifted the latch. End of chapter 25 Recording by Hope K.